Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan Hansen. And I'm Jake Friedman. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. This week, we'll be covering Kingdom Builder, a light, family-weight chaining card game with... It's not a card game. Chaining style tile plays a game. Oh gosh, here we go. Getting into the the genres right off the bat again from Donald X, X Vaccarino, the designer of Dominion, a game intended to play differently every time. Um, but Jake and I will get into the meat of that and discuss if we think it actually does and if it's a game worth exploring its decision space. Jake, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great. I am coming to you live from my parents' house in Kansas, hoping for a good connection. Just had a great uh, Thanksgiving with the family, and I hope uh, the same is true for everyone listening. If, if you celebrate, and if not, you know, I hope that you are doing well. <laughs> Absolutely, same, same for me, though not the childhood bedroom aspect. Um, for our pre-planners out there, if you have some downtime over the holidays and you want to catch up, a friendly reminder that n- next week is going to be a what we talk about episode, or just like a general topical episode. Um, And then if you do want to try to play along, the next game Jake and I are probably going to cover is going to be Raiders of the North Sea, um, a sort of midweight, lightweight Euro game. So take a look. There's an app if you don't have a physical copy. Yeah, it'll be good to get uh, a Garpil game onto the show since there's such a crazy loyal following for those games. And and we'll kind of get into maybe if that is well-deserved, which I think the game that sort of kicked off that whole company really yeah and the movement that's become sort of the cardinal direction games <laughs> yeah but jake that's not delaying any further i want to hear your slogan and your rating and review for kingdom builder oh boy a bit nervous about this one all right so i am just going to be totally honest here if i'm not giving you my honest opinion about the games we cover then what are we doing so this game for me is a four a four and... <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah so I think my slogan is, you know, the game starts off really fun. Uh, and, and then I just feel from there, it just sort of diminishes how much enjoyment I have on over the course of the game. I really love games that allow me to dive into decisions and explore interesting decision spaces so much so that I created a podcast called Decision Space. And I think where I found this game most lacking is there in the decisions that I got to make. And we'll talk more about that. So that that's that's where I'm at as we start this conversation. Awesome. And I'm biased to enjoy Kingdom Builder because I adore games in this sort of placing and chaining genre. And I'm a big fan of light rule system with emergent consequences. But in some ways, Kingdom Builder's restrictions and the constant fighting against the ways in which the decision space is pruned and pruned and pruned by the choices I've made early on in the game can start to feel a little bit too restrictive on repeat plays. And I think that it's tough for me to want to return to Kingdom Builder sort of 15, 20, 25 plays on as I'm into it, um, because I, I don't know that the promise of the game ends up being what is delivered on the table always. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I think it's a game that is worth exploring, but not one I'm likely to go back to. So for me, it's a 7.5 out of 10. Awesome. And we sh- we should say, too, that this is a game that has 
a really loyal following online. A lot of people have popped up in our Discord saying, like, we're so excited that you're covering this game and we're excited to cover it. Uh, and those are just our very subjective ratings. So don't let that dissuade you. I would encourage everyone to listen in as we sort of explore these decisions and see if that might be something uh, that you would enjoy checking out yourself rather than going just solely on the rating, which is the least valuable thing that we do here, I say. Definitely. I completely agree. And I think that the interesting thing about Kingdom Builder from the podcast the perspective of the podcast is I think there's a ton of lessons to learn about decision spaces from this game, even if it's not necessarily one we both want to return to. Uh, and it's also fascinating how divisive Kingdom Builder is as a game. So I'm sure we'll get into some of that as well. Some background. So this is the follow-up game to Dominion from Donald X. Vaccarino. So he released Dominion in 2008 while Rio Grande Games did. Uh, and then Queen Games published Kingdom Kingdom Builder in 2011. So this is a really anticipated game when it came up, uh, came out. It plays two to four players, and it actually won the Spill the Yars the following year in 2012. So I, we always like to read the jury statements from the Spill the Yars committee to sort of get in the mind of what people were thinking about a given game if it won the Spill the Yars before we delve into it on the show. So Jake, do you want to read this one? Sure. An American designer has created the land of unlimited opportunities. Thanks to the variable game board and the large number of different victory conditions, each kingdom is unique. The different starting positions and the importance of luck create new strategic challenges for the players. The simple building mechanic doesn't reveal its charm straight away, but allows its true class to unfold after a few games. So there it is. The jury statement. It's a really interesting one, I think, because even in there, it's saying like this game might not hit for you right off the bat um which kind of makes me wonder you know does this game win the spiel if not from a you know acclaimed designer who's already got one mega hit under their belt yeah it's really interesting i, I do wonder how much of this was recognizing the contributions of dominion alongside a really solid game that had come out after it and interestingly i think kingdom builder plus plus uh dominion create this sort of um, this thesis around what Donald X. Vaccarino is trying to do in his designs in terms of every play of each game being different. I don't know that I would agree with the Spiel Committee that every play of Kingdom Builder is unique. And I think that's something we'll get into the show is different doesn't necessarily mean unique. Um, so yeah, that's, I think let's get into it. We prepared a quick rules overview for anyone who is not familiar with the game. And Kingdom Builder is so simple. I can basically teach you the game in about two minutes. So let's, let's get into it. Every game of Kingdom Builder is a bit different. Before the game begins, players randomly select four boards from a pool of eight included in the game and lay them out in a 2x2 two two grid on the table. Each of these boards depict a different arrangement of the following features, terrain, grasslands, canyons, flower fields, water, mountains, etc., divided into discrete hexes, meaning no one hex ever contains two types of the same terrain. A few special location tiles, which give the first two players to connect their kingdoms to these locations, special actions each turn, and one or two castle locations, which provide three victory points when connected to a player's kingdom. These four boards come together to create the complete board on which a particular game of Kingdom Builder is played. Each player is given 40 settlement tokens to begin the game. Each turn, the active player draws a card from a deck of 25 cards that contains the game's five core terrain types depicted on them. 
Then they may place up to three of their settlements anywhere on the board in the location of the train type depicted on the card they drew. For example, if a player draws a card depicting forest, they may place three settlements in any train hexes depicting a forest in which no other player has already placed a settlement. Simple enough, but there's a twist. If players are able to place adjacent to settlements they've already placed on the board, then they must do so. Thus, Kingdom Builder is a game about placing settlements in such a way to maximize the potential options you might have in a decision space constructed to significantly limit the player's choices and decisions. If a player has any special tiles, they may use each tile once per turn for a unique effect, such as adding one extra settlement to a specific terrain type or moving an already placed settlement into the water. For increased variability, each game of Kingdom Builder features three randomly chosen endgame scoring cards from a pool of 10 cards, which dramatically alters the objectives of the game. A play of Kingdom Builder ends which any player has placed all their settlements onto the board, at which point the current round is completed, then victory points are tallied according to the scoring objectives, and the player with the most points wins. Thank you, Brendan, for that great rules overview, as always. I'm really excited to get into this first part of the conversation, as always, where we'll try and characterize the decision space that players will exist within during a play of this game, Kingdom Builder. So we okay. just start with the size like we normally do. <laughs> yeah, I think we should. St yes, we should. Um what do you think the size of this decision space is, Jake? Like almost comically small, right? And I think that huh. is sort of like the thing that bounces me off the game the hardest, where it just feels like on the majority of my turns, you know, it's 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 something closer to like tic-tac-toe than it is the okay. modern board game experience in that. Uh, you know okay not i'm not trying to just be like crazy controversial but in that like i can see <laughs> this is clearly my best option or mm. like i have to do this um you know and and then you i mean you talked about the restraints yourself we'll get into that more um but yeah just i think it's like the combination of like limited choices and just like a crystal clear decision space Interestingly, at the outset of the game, the decision. So, whenever we talk about the size of a decision space, I feel like we have this unspoken sort of mental arithmetic that we're doing, where we're taking sort of the average weight and size and breadth and depth of a decision space at all of the decision points in a given game. Uh, we're not literally doing this, but I think this is kind of what we're trying to do when we generally talk through this. And then take some average of that and sort of say, okay, this is a large decision space based on the sum total of all of these spaces. And that's really hard to do with Kingdom Builder because the size of this decision space varies dramatically from turn to turn. And that the first decision you make in a game is generally, it's not massive, right? You can't place anywhere on the board. It's a game built around the restriction that you have to make do with what you're given based on the train cards you, you draw. But it's pretty big and your decisions are hugely impactful in that first turn, just like massively impactful. So I think talking around first turn decisions, I think is, is big. And at that first turn, it feels quite large. And then quickly, depending on how you place, so the impact of your decisions can make the decision space nothing. You have literally no meaningful choices about where you would place. You are drawing a card and you are executing the actions that you've dictated for yourself based on the random outcome of the cards that are drawn to the point where you might have a turn or two in a row where you don't make decisions. Um, and I think that's why so many people bounce off of this game. 
And you're doing that because of the consequences of decisions you've already made. I think I don't need to die. It's a pretty small decision space. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, definitely it's interesting because luck can play two ways in a decision space, right? Having a lot of random input is something that in some of the games we've covered can make the decision space feel much bigger because you're constantly going in like unpredictable and new directions, right? If you think about a game like Race for the Galaxy and the luck of, you know, what you get in the starting cards is going to like completely facilitate like a new path uh, that that you've maybe never explored before, where the luck here in con- combination with the incredibly restrictive nature of what you can do on your turn feels mm-hmm. much more like it is serving to reduce the decision space, right? Uh, it, it it very rarely feels like, oh, that was lucky and now I get to do more. It's almost always, well, <laughs> I wish I didn't draw this forest. You know, I don't know. It, it it feels like it just closes it down. It I definitely agree with that. Though I will say, I do think that there's a lot... I feel some degree of responsibility to defend Kingdom Builder, if only because I think that the strategic implications and the consequences of the early decisions you make can really meaningfully impact the decision space, even though you don't feel the agency around decisions you make in the mid to late game as heavily, because the special tiles interact so uniquely with a given setup of the board that you can really meaningfully change the way that you are making decisions with how the special tiles work um, and carve out decisions that you can make in the mid to late game that do give you an edge potentially over your opponent though maybe not as much as uh, i wish you could with those tiles when when i first learned this game i distinctly remember thinking you know this is great because it's really easy to learn and then that first turn of the game you're already having fun like you get to make a really interesting decision uh, you get to pick what kind of special power you're going to inform that's going to inform your strategy that you're going to build around from there. And I love that. It feels very old school, I think, in a way. I almost compared it to Settlers of Catan, where like placing your first mm. two settlements is going to inform your whole gameplay and how that plays out. Um, and I think there's something like really fun about that. Uh, it doesn't, in a lot of the games that we play and have covered on this show, you're sort of building up to impactful decisions. And here it's like, here's your most important decision you'll make all game turn one. And I think there's something very fun about that and charming about that. Yeah, I totally agree. And it, I do think that some of the fun of these sort of chaining tile placing games is often the fact that you it encourages player interaction because you are able to, on the board, interact with other players really meaningfully in terms of where and how you're placing. And I think that the special tiles give you the potential to do that a little bit more often. And the randomness of what cards you draw is trying to shield players from the feel bad that can come of targeting someone, but it makes it so difficult that interacting almost feels like a happenstance in a a lot of games in a way that can be feel really frustrating. Um, We're talking about those like early decisions. I almost wish that you had even a little bit more agency in those decisions because it is fun sort of shaping your identity, but then you kind of have to let the decision space just wash over you. Yeah, I think the other game that there's a really strong comparison to, and it's a favorable one for me, is Carcassonne. And again, you know, it's an older game with a different, you know, game design ethos. Um, and and like Kingdom Builder in Carcassonne, you draw one tile. 
and whatever you can do is completely dictated by that one tile you draw. And I sort of like mm-hmm. that about games. Um, I, I think it's something I wish that uh, modern game designers would explore more and put putting these like incredibly restrictive uh, mechanisms in the game because it does distill down the decision space uh, to, you know, one singular moment and, and asks a very specific question, which is fun and different than a lot of modern games where it's like, okay, well, you've got five different action points to spend and you can do any combination of things and blah, blah, blah. Here it's like, nope, this is your your options. It's very limited. Make the best out of it. And I think there's something fun and it does allow for creativity in managing those restrictions to the best of your ability to find an edge over players. And that's definitely possible to do here. But I I think it's less successful for me here than in uh, Carcassonne because the way that you're limited, it's it feels like there's less opportunity to for things to like balance out equally over the course of the game. Um, maybe it's just because you have have significantly less turns overall, so you're not as likely to end up with an equal distribution as something in Carcassonne, or maybe it's just because of like how restrictive it is. Like it's the placement in addition to placing adjacently um, that makes it feel like just too much. I I love the comparison to Carcassonne. And the turn structure feels so similar in terms of how things play out. But I feel like the biggest things and the differences for me is in Carcassonne, every tile represents like potentially two or three different options in ways in which you can meaningfully interact with the board in terms of different levels of risk associated with those actions. Do you just want a few points now? Do you want to try to sort of edge your way into a farm or a city. So there's different levels of risk taking that you can adjust for that are really difficult in Kingdom Builder because you have so much less agency in terms of taking risks and the points that are gained are so much more incremental in a given turn. We'll get into talking about the scoring objectives later. And I think the scoring objectives are actually some of my favorite things about this design, how different the different combinations of them coming together can make a game feel. But I think the non-linear scoring ones, right, there's a lot that say, okay, every time you place a, a settlement, if you just place it in this way, you'll get one point. Give the the feel of the turns a very incremental feel. And there's not a huge amount of them that allow you to take meaningful risks around placing in a certain area and having a large payoff. There's a couple, and I like those when they come up significantly more, but I think that's a big difference with Carcassonne. Yeah, definitely a great point. There's significantly less bingos here, right? And Carcassonne just feels so great Mm -hmm. when you can like fill in a gap on the board, you know, and here it's like, maybe you can connect two settlement areas. That's going to give you like three or four points, or you take majority in a sector of the board. And that's, important for the outcome of the game but you're, you're totally right even if you're taking majority which could be like a 12 point swing it's you're taking majority by like one or two settlements which could just be like overtaken yeah. on a future turn um and i guess kind of the last thing i want to say about the luck and randomness in this game is it does to me feel like perhaps you know and again i think this goes back to just like an older way of designing games or you know maybe tastes around the time of this game but it feels like every single thing in this game like every strategic decision that you can make which are 
may be very limited just by the draw of the cards um like how many strategic decisions you get to make over the course of the game but even then it's like okay i'm gonna block this person from like reaching this area it's like Mm -hmm. all just potentially good because that person maybe wants desperately to get to that tile but if they don't draw the cards that would have enabled them to do it anyway it just like doesn't really matter and i think the same is true with uh the powers like there are some like really interesting and creative ways you can use the special powers like i like i really like the the idea that the power that allows you to move one of yours uh settlements on the board to a different space on the board can sort of create a situation where like an one of your opponents thought that they would be able to place a field anywhere if they draw the field card. But now you're like Mm. opening up field space that they have to expand into uh, inefficiently. And like, that's such like a cool idea, but it just may never pay off because it, those cards don't come out in that way. And that doesn't mean it's not a strategic choice or that you're not like incrementally increasing your advantage in the game. It just feels less satisfying than it would if, you know, those things all lined up more often. Which I think in speaking about the feel of the decision space is why so many of the decisions in the mid to late game feel a little bit blunted because there's such a question around, well, is this even going to matter? And the feedback is so much lower than the direct feedback early in the game where you're literally placing something, getting a tile directly, then using that tile, that special tile in the in the next turn. And I agree, the design of the special tiles, a lot of them add a lot of potential for interesting creativity, um, but the opportunity to use them creatively in sort of a tactical matter in an impactful way feels less frequent than I wish it did. Can we pivot Jake? Well, what we, we always talk about the type of decision space. Yeah. Let's talk about the type. And this one is clearly waning in my opinion. Yeah. And wanes really, really hard (laughs) from that first turn. You know, we talked about how big and enjoyable uh, that placement is. Uh, Yeah. Which is truly, you know, something I love about the game. Um, And, and then, the next turn of the like literally on your next turn you could have no choices at all or meaningless choices if you know you just happen to draw the one type of terrain that you were forced to place into originally it's like okay i guess i just have to like fill up the rest of this field <laughs> sweet yeah interestingly we don't play a ton of games where that are waning games where they wane to zero in the middle of the game and then maybe pop back up to to allow some for for some more decisions once sort of the problem that's been created on the board has been solved for you because a lot of times the bigger areas of a certain terrain type depending on the objectives cards that are out can the cost of going there is okay my next certain amount of turns of this terrain type are just going to be burned wasted time so it represents an opportunity cost there um but yeah, it just like sort of shaves off that part of the decision space. And then maybe it will pop back up. And like a lot of winning games, winning decision space games, the game itself is about fighting against the decision space to create as many options and decisions for yourself throughout the game. But Kingdom Builder makes that fight really tough. Yeah. So the last thing I think we should say on just the decision space generally is touch on the clarity of it. Um, which, mm. And when we talk about clarity, what we're speaking about is you know, how calculable are your decisions? Like, can you math out exactly where to go? Or is there some element of fuzziness um, that, you know, because of, you know, hidden cards or, you know, secret motives or just like the sheer amount of information, it's difficult to know exactly what to do. 
Um, and I'd feel like of all the games we've played, this is the clearest decision space. Like to me, it feels almost crystal clear. Like I feel like I've, mm. I don't know exactly how many times I've played this game prior to recording, but I, I think like somewhere in the range of like seven to eight. And I feel like I can almost count on one hand the number of turns I've had where I felt like I'm not sure if I'm making the right choice. Actually, I take that back. Excluding the very first turn of the game, if you exclude where to place originally, which I think is hard and a little bit fuzzier, like if you exclude that over the course of the game, I feel like I could just look at the objectives, look at my board and the limited options I have, and almost just math out exactly like this is the course that's going to give me the most points. Do you feel that way or do you feel differently? I hear that criticism and I do think that it's fair to say this is one of the clearest decision spaces we've played. But I think that sometimes, especially in two or three player count games, there's, depending on how the board is set up, there's a few potential paths early on. And knowing which direction to take it in terms of where I'm going to force most of my points from and make my points from each scoring objective, getting as many as I can from there, it's not always clear which way I should go. But I will say that because the agency in the decision space is generally so low, it doesn't always feel like a meaningful decision between those different paths that I see. So you kind of feel like, okay, I'm just going to try for this one because it's the it's probably going to be the easiest to achieve. Um, and I think it's the agency question that makes it such that you're just like, what's the most points I can extract on this turn? Because I can't reliably enact my plans outside of some of the special tiles that you get, right? Like sometimes you're going to go for like two oasis tiles that are going to enhance your ability to place in deserts. And then you give yourself this objective of like, I'm going to connect these places. And for the rest of the game, I'm always going to use my Oasis tiles to place in this desert in this specific way. Um, But but beyond stuff like that, yeah, I think it's generally pretty clear because you can't make reasonable risks without potentially just throwing away the game in terms of like going outlandishly risk taking. Yeah, you make two great points there that I hadn't thought about for why it is calculable. It may be more fuzzy than I'm giving it credit for, but because you cannot reliably know what you're going to do, you I feel maybe, and it might be a restraint I'm putting on myself, but I feel obligated to, in any given turn, do whatever is going to give me the most points, uh, rather than yeah. trying to build toward a strategy which may never happen. And then secondly, I think what you're saying is like, you pretty much pick a strategy in that first turn in large part, based on what your starting power is, uh, or maybe you know you you keep it open where you can go like one or two ways. But once you start going down a path, you're obligated to continue down it because literally of the restriction where you have to place adjacently if possible. It's like the game fundamentally like does not let you alter your plans because of that super important placement restriction. And I think the game invites the player to feel really clever because the game itself becomes try to break this rule. Try If you can't place adjacently, then you don't have to. So you get to earn this reward if you set up the game state in a way that you then get a ton of decisions. But because of the potential randomness, it, it doesn't feel like you don't necessarily feel super clever. It just feels like something you kind of set up and then happens in a way that if it was more direct, if you knew what cards were coming and you could, even if there was just one card per turn, or if there was a row of cards and players like picked from them and then 
which ones were left you had to play to, all of a sudden you might feel much more clever because you're making your decisions based off of potential options that could come out that are really clear. Whereas the degree of randomness tied to these cards, not even just the restriction of there being one card, makes it so hard for you to feel like you're making meaningful decisions around setting things up. So the payoff of feeling clever of... I love that that's the framework of the game, right? Like play in a way that you can create a ton more options for yourself, fight against the decision space and I will reward you. But that's, that's such a cool idea. And it has the potential to feel like you've been equipped with this mighty sword where you can meaningfully just wreck the board and take this really powerful turn. But the payoff just never feels quite real because of how fuzzy the potentials are. You just feel like you kind of happened into it and that's fine, um, but it doesn't necessarily feel good. And I think part of the reason the decision space is necessarily so fuzzy around the objectives too, Jake, is because if it weren't, if it did reward a lot of risk-taking, then the game is just rewarding luck even more. So the the design of those objectives has shifted to encourage maximizing points on a given turn to help the game feel fair, but then it sort of undercuts itself a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I I think, I mean, we've we've really dwelled on the decision space here, um, and I think we're giving good kind of depiction of what it feels like to play this game you know it's very restrictive um there are times absolutely where you get to feel really clever um both in terms of you know how how you've placed in such a way so that you can you know break break the game rules to get a big advantage over players like that does feel great when it happens and i think similarly like when you come up with a creative line based on your player powers and you you use them in combination to again break those game rules uh or or you know or even just like you've set up uh an engine so that like you're over the course of the game every turn like you're saying you're like pumping this engine you're building like two deserts a turn and each one of those is scoring you points and it feels you know satisfying uh and fun but you know a, but I, you know, I keep going back to like, but like the decisions there, you know, is, it's just like, it feels so direct, like, like so clear that I, I just feel like I'm not, I don't get to, I can't like just look at a board state for a long time if I want to and think like, oh, like I could do that. What if I do that? Then will this other thing happen? It's like, no, you just have to go along this very clear linear path or you just count up how many points you can get based on these options and you just do the one that has more. Yeah. And it's not fun to feel like a little bit of a procedural robot where you're executing the consequences of your previous decisions. That's right. I totally hear that feedback about the game. I think that's pivoted into some of the other sort of potential areas that I think it will be interesting to interrogate the game from. And we'll continue to discuss the decision space because like you said, we've stuck with it for a long time, but this next question is sort of, this idea of what the spiel presents, what Donald X Vaccarino presents as sort of, I think, his design trademark of every game is going to be different of a game that I play. So the ways in which this is played out with Kingdom Builder is that there's 70 combinations of boards. I did some math so we could kind of dive into it. How many unique versions of, a, of games of Kingdom Builder, quote unquote, really exist? So there's 70 combinations of boards, right? There's eight boards included in any given game and you pick four of them. I'm not considering uh, potential orientations of boards, I will say, in this math, which is going to blow this number up. I'll mention how that factors into it. And there's 120 combinations of scoring cards uh, because there's 10 scoring cards in the game and you pick three of them. Um, So that's a lot of different variety that can potentially come in with how the board is shaped and what the scoring cards are. 
And when you take those two factors together, if you don't care about the arrangement of the boards, uh, how the terrain is interlocking, there's 8,400 different arrangements, which is quite large. That's a lot of different ways to play. If you do care about the arrangement of boards, which it does matter, it jumps up to something like a million, one million six hundred twelve thousand eight hundred different arrangements, which is quite large. Um, but I was curious how big Dominion was, base Dominion. In that, there's 25 base cards in the set, and you pick 10 of those to use in a given game. So there's 3,268,760 different combinations of unique arrangements. So even there, I, I was sort of curious. Like, I wasn't sure. Is Kingdom Builder going to be bigger in terms of how many variations there are or Dominion? And I was surprised to see that Dominion was bigger, um, given the sort of two different ways in which Kingdom Builder includes variants between the boards and the objectives cards. Yeah, well, thanks for doing all that math. I do think it's interesting <laughs> and also to me telling when you bring in Dominion, like my first immediate thought is like every card introduced in a Dominion set has like such a larger impact on the decision space and like how the game plays out than anything that you mentioned about Kingdom Builder. I do like the scoring cards a lot. I think the scoring cards do the most to create a unique feel from game to game. I think that, so the boards too, because of the way the boards are set up, that every board brings two of any given one action tile. Um, I do feel like the promise of those is something close to the cards of Dominion, right? The feel of this decision space is going to be different because the way the actions play out is different. And the value of any given special action tile, like the paddock can be great in games with the hermit, where you're trying to get lots of little sediments not connected to other settlements. Um, but they feel so linear because they, I, the special tiles are these discrete actions that don't interact that strongly with each other. They're sort of linear benefits. So when you bring like uh, an Oracle into a game with sort of a high tower or a tower, those don't necessarily change how each one feels in the way that when you bring X card and Y card together in a Dominion set is going to change the decision space in a way that i totally get what you're saying where like it, it almost feels like the fact that these randomly combine it just doesn't really change how the game feels all that much it just feels different rather than unique in, yeah. in the way that dominions games can feel unique rather than just different the other thing about the player powers is you aren't going to get to use them all in any given game you know you you mm -hmm. might get up to like four which would be a lot you're doing really well in that game i think if you are able to kind of link together that many um so so you don't get to play with all of them in the game in a given game like as, as yourself a player but the other thing that's interesting is how they're tied to specific boards like in a way that like really reduces mm. variability you know i'm surprised what i mean what they are right in the physical copy of the game are tiles that get placed on on top of the board Right, it would be really easy to say, you know, randomly shuffle these up and pick out eight and put them on the board. And that would actually, I think, create a lot more variability because, you know, you'd have to explore the different combinations like within the same board. Like, should I go for these two that are near each other here? Um, but the way it is where you, I don't think every single board is this way, but on most of the boards, you have two of the same power. Um, yeah. Which is, and a castle, usually. And a castle, which is kind of like, again, like it limits the variability because if you're starting on one board, it makes it more difficult to get out and uh, get 
different powers. And so, so a lot of games end up being like, okay, well, I just get like two of the farms and double down on that strategy and build up in, in fields or, or what have you. I think that a lot of that is just necessitated by the design because of the way that at the, the impact of the decisions you make in the first turn are already huge, right? That they completely shape how the, the game goes. So if it was completely randomized and there was one, if, any given board arrangement made a certain tile too powerful. It could just make it feel like some people say this game is decided on the first play and then you just execute your actions and it could feel even, which I don't think is true, but it could feel even more that way. If there's a certain board arrangement where it was so clear that one of these randomized tiles in a specific location was just so wildly much better than everything else out there that it could make the game a foregone conclusion. So I feel like that sort of binding of the special tiles with specific boards is adding these bumpers to keep it somewhat balanced from play to play and not have it go too off the rails. Um, but yeah, you could have added it. The design could have had even more variability. And maybe if there was slightly more agency around play, it would have worked to have that increased variability. But because there's not that much agency in terms of like controlling and blocking the strongest player, it has to be more tightly bound in this way to keep it feeling fair. I get what you're saying. And also it strikes me as like a strange justification for like a game that's like, the first turn is as impactful as any that I've played. And then to say like, oh, but like, we just wanted to like rein that in just a little bit. It's like, you've already like gone so far down that path of having like an impactful first turn and, you know, random variable setups that, you know, and just random stuff that can happen over the course of the game that can be just horribly unbalancing. Like say you draw the desert, card three times in a row or something um sure which i think happened to to our friend johannes in one of our recent games that's like it just seems like a weird place to say like no i'm putting my foot down there about like having more variability in the setup which i think would actually be interesting in a a lot of plays yeah i i I completely agree with you jake and it's in some ways it pulls out i think what makes the game so frustrating i i maybe we can talk about this perilous nature of the decision space and sort of what we mean by that and discuss if kingdom builder is a perilous decision space. Um, So this is an idea that came up in a previous episode, Um, a perilous decision space sort of being, we've talked about sort of how there's safe decision spaces where you're getting around the same value, despite any given actions you might take in a game. Some people would say that games that are safe are sort of have bumpers set up. Um, And perilous decision spaces give players the ability to make meaningful mistakes that can really cost them. Um, So early on in the game, this is ostensibly presented as sort of a family weight game. Um, And it's interesting, we've talked so much about how those initial placements are hugely consequential. And I think if you expose yourself to too many terrain types, or if God forbid you claim a castle as your first play, depending on the board, I guess it could be viable, but it can hold you back quite a bit not to get a special action. it can really be dangerous in terms of the potential you decisions you get to make. And I, I don't know. What, what do you think, Jake? Yeah, I mean, I think you can't have it both ways where like uh, the first turn of the game is really important and it's also not a perilous decision space. So to me, that just like by nature, yes, that's the case. Mm-hmm. And I can give an example of my first time playing this game with y'all. I made a what I imagine is like an absolute classic rookie kingdom builder mistake where I placed my tiles and I did get an important and very good 
first, you know, player extra special player action or whatever. But what I also did was I positioned my settlements in such a way that I was touching three different terrains. So over the whole remainder of the game, uh, in, rather than like spreading out across the board to where I could achieve other uh, powers and, and score more points, I was just forced turn after turn to continue expanding <laughs> into like the bottom left corner of the board. And there was absolutely nothing I could do to get out of that. Um, you know, and I, sure, I ended up uh, scoring a respectable amount of points at the end. I can't remember exactly. Maybe I lost by like 12 points or something like 60 to 48, but fun, but like fundamentally I was out of that game from that first, first choice. Yeah. Which, and I remember you saying, did I make a, did I make a mistake or did, was the randomness just too, too punishing? And the answer was kind of like both. Right. Um, where that's just the nature of the game. And I think, when you're playing this game, there's a lot of like, that's talk through the first placement and decisions that some people might make in a learning game, because they are so impactful with the location tiles. You mentioned something interesting, Jake. And I think that I've heard people, I was reading some reviews of Kingdom Builder online. And some of them e even mentioned sort of talking about how Kingdom Builder has elements of engine building. And I sort of really disagree with this idea. It comes from the idea that as you're collecting more tiles, you're, you can potentially place more and more um, settlements onto the board each turn as you which there is some truth to this but i think the way that the game ends and the idea of that right is the more settlements on the board the higher your scoring potential is because you've outpaced your opponents to the end of the game the end game condition being whoever places their final settlement onto the board that round is then finished and then the game ends um, i think that there's elements of truth to this but the way in which you have this there's this like emergent banding is what I'm going to call it, around the placing of settlements, where a lot of times just the way the math works out, if you get ahead, you'll sort of get to the point where you're going to place one settlement onto the board in your final turn. So that's limiting what you're doing in your final turn, maybe two. And then everyone else gets one more turn to sort of catch up. And in that final turn, they're placing three or maybe four or five, depending on the special tiles that they have, that gives them a potential to catch up a little bit. So I think the impacts of that are sometimes a little bit overstated in terms of how it functionally mathematically plays out in terms of how it plays. I think that's a couple of things about that. I think that's mostly true about the racing to get out settlements element of the game, but it definitely yeah. can happen and probably will happen to somebody in a four player game where the game will end and they will have significantly less uh, settlements out on the board De yeah. just based on uh you know, really luck of the draw and whether they were able to get tiles that allowed them to expand to, or sorry, draw cards that allowed them to expand their settlements towards additional player powers or not. Because if you're putting out two uh, extra settlements every single turn from turn three on and somebody else is putting out one, that's going to be a bigger difference than, uh, you know, even catching up at the end of a, a turn. Um, so I think that's yeah. one thing. And the other thing is, I don't think the engine building component to me has much to do with just pumping out number of settlements, which I agree that doesn't make a lot of sense. But I do think you can create situations where you have built up a point scoring engine based on mm. your combination of uh, powers. Maybe you have the, uh, what was the example you used earlier? Like you have the paddock and some other settlement generating thing. So every single turn of the game, you're putting out a, a farm or whatever, and then you're moving it 
two spaces to score an additional point with the hermit. Um, and then because you've moved off that farm, you can do it again next turn and turn after that. So it's like you have created this point scoring engine um, or based hmm. on you know the other scoring titles, you know, you've just got uh, open forest yourself and you're able to just like build along the river in the forest every single turn scoring more points uh so i do think in that sense it is there is engine building element to it where you want to be focused on crafting a board state that allows you to be producing points because putting out a bunch of settlements if you're just dumping them into a field you know that that could quite literally be scoring you zero points you know sure definitely Let's talk about the scoring tiles, Jake. Do you have ones that you think impact the, or excuse me, the special action tiles? Do you have ones that you like the most and you feel like impact the decision space of the game in an interesting way? Um, I, I wouldn't, not particularly. <laughs> I mean, it depends, right? All of this is going to be contingent upon this, right? The combination between the special tiles that are out and the scoring conditions for a given game. So like you said, right, the paddock, yeah. that's the one that allows you to move a settlement like up to two spaces away. Is that right? Yep. So that's yeah. really important and, you know, will give you a fundamental different game if you have the hermit out, which is allows you to score one point for each separate uh, group of settlements you have. Uh, but I think my typical strategy is to play the the basic game as efficiently as possible, where I tend to go for... Um, the ones that just allow me to put out extra settlements more. And then I just try yeah. And I mean, it could be, you know, the farm, the oasis, the tower. Like I like tavern. all of the tavern, all of those. Um, and then I just try and build my board in such a way that I'll be able to complete those spaces, you know, prior to activating. So then I can expand the new powers. I feel like that's just like, kind of like, yeah. that's like your, level one strategy for playing this game i do think that the i think it's interesting that the placing on water was locked behind the harbor tile you have to move up an existing settlement so it's not giving you any tempo on the board uh, and then you're allowed to place into water which i i like that tile i think that does lead to potentially interesting decisions around is this board going to can i create a lot of points by potentially networking mini locations together by using the harbor that i wouldn't be able to otherwise if maybe merchants the one that gives you extra points for connecting multiple uh location tiles or citizens for just create making sure you have the biggest overall contiguous area of settlements i also like the tavern and how it lets you place a, a new settlement at the end of a line of three i think that changes how i think about my placements my settlements on the board more than a lot of the other tiles where I'm just looking at what new train types I'm exposing myself to. So I think those two, I think tend to create some of the most interesting decisions. At first I loved the paddock. I thought it was super powerful and interesting. Do you think the tavern creates more interesting decisions? Like I agree that it's like makes you place in a different way, but like placing it so that you have at least three in a row is like, it's not exactly rocket science. It's not rocket science, but because the three in a row is going to lead to more placings potentially at the end of that chain, I think it leads to more interesting decisions of taking a step back and looking at the board and seeing where these lines that you're creating could potentially lead to. Sometimes it doesn't do that, but sometimes it does. And figuring out how to potentially abuse that, where your opponents are placing, factoring into that, I think can lead to more interesting decisions where you're fighting that you're not fighting the agency of the card draw as much and just trying to actually create these networks. That makes sense. And I may I'm being a little unfair, but because 
okay, do I create a line of three if that means I'm now touching this flower field that I don't want to be touching? Mm -hmm. That's probably like about as fuzzy and complex as the tile placement decision making goes. Or which direction do I want my line of three to be pointing? Is it worth it to sort of not, if the workers are up, the card that gives you points for surrounding a special action tile, is it worth it to place my three in such a way that I'm not going to get points for blocking the special action tile this turn, and I'm going to set up my barn to go in a different direction instead, knowing that I'm placing on grassland, okay, I'll probably draw at least one more grassland tile and be able to pick those points up later. Or should I just use my grassland tile that I drew this time to get those points from workers and not set up a barn in this direction and just or a tavern in this direction and use my tavern to be placing over here anyway? I think there can be interesting trade-offs with the taverns because it incentivizes a little bit more turn-over-turn planning. Yeah, and but then, like, I agree. <laughs> I totally agree with you, and I think you make a really compelling case. But I guess, like, where I would push back is, like, at the end of that line of thought, it's, like, whichever one is right is going to be completely contingent upon, like, what cards you draw in the future, which you have no yep. way of knowing, you know? So it's, like, yeah, yeah you can, you. can I feel like I get to these points in the game where it's, like, okay, this is both it, it, whenever you get to a place like okay either of these could potentially be viable like well i'll just kind of like throw my hands up and i typically will just do the one that like i score more points right now which i think is fair though there is the consideration of okay if i draw this one of these two terrain types i could connect to grassland and that will give me or to one of the special tiles that lets me place on grassland every turn the farm um so if i draw those two i'll do that and if I don't do that, I've set myself up. If I just draw th this train type, then I can do the workers. I think the game is about sort of creating these scenarios where no matter what you draw, you have a plan for it and you're getting points, which is really what you're saying and what I'm saying yeah. in sort of different ways. And you don't necessarily... I agree that it doesn't end up being an interesting decision because of that. So I think that kind of says it all. Let's talk about the scoring cards, the objective cards, because you said these are your favorite part of the game. Yeah, in terms of uh, like adding variability to it, I think these are definitely successful. One of the ones I really like is, I might get it wrong, but is it like the Explorer or Navigator where you want to build on as many horizontal lines over the course of the game as possible? There's these the two that do it differently. So Knights is horizontal and Discoveries is going Discoveries vertical. is what I'm talking about. So I think that is like a really fun and kind of thematic one where it's sort of saying you want to like explore as much of the board as you can from a north to south, like a ver on the along the vertical axis, and that's really fun. Yeah. Uh, kind of creating that full line across because that's going to be a lot of points to you, and a lot of times, yeah, you can just do three in a straight up, but potentially, right, you're going to have to be a little bit creative when mountains or water blocks your path, and like, can you set up a way to start building another area? Um, so yeah, I mean like and again uh, versus citizens which is just having as large of a group of settle of settlements as you can versus workers where you're trying to build around uh the special tiles as much as possible. The combination of these like not it's not nothing is like groundbreaking. Um and I don't know that I like strongly prefer some to others, but it, it does feel like they are successful in at least you know in shifting your sort of inputs at for how you play the entire game every time 
Yeah, and I think the design ethos of some of these was like, I can take this common rule set and make a different type of game, quote unquote, depending on which cards are, are here. So like the Lord's card gives the game a flavor of area control, right? Because it breaks the game into the four quadrants based on the board that's out and you're getting 12 points if you have the most settlements there or six if you're second. I really like that card because it creates those potential for sweeping turns, though it's hard to come back if you fall behind a lot in one of those. Yeah, I think the Lord's one is like my least favorite one because like I found really? myself with Lord's like, Part of it was just like an actual like I felt like it bogged down the play because I'm like constantly counting and recounting how many mm, like yeah. settlements I have in every single sector at versus other players on every single turn, which just like I didn't enjoy doing that like mental math, especially towards the end of the game. Yeah. where It's like, OK, I have 10 and Brendan has 11 here, but over here I have nine and Brendan has eight and like in the third one, you know, it's just like, oh, my God, like this is annoying to me just the simple like mental and math of it and the other thing i felt like that one particularly exacerbated the luck element of it where because Mm. i think the scoring is 12 points for winning a region like yeah it seems like in a two-player game if both players are able to play their game like you almost always will get a situation where you'll just split it and it won't matter because like you have to prioritize that and it feels like if somebody gets into a situation where they're, you know, forced to build unoptimally for a couple of turns, then the other player is going to win three. And that's probably going to be the difference in the game. So I just felt like, I see, especially I at Lord's two, is, a little bit issue. Yeah, I don't love the arithmetic and the need for counting that Lords creates, but I do like the way that it changes my consideration of how I'm trying to set up my board uh, to try to, depending on player count, where I'm placing. And I liked the the area control aspects personally. I think it, merchants, it is like, the network building. Sorry, that was the last thing on Lords. Like the thing that's really interesting about Lords that I think none of the other ones really do is it like makes the middle of the board generally like yep. really important because you'd Better. be able to get into all of the different sections easier. And I don't think any of the other ones that I experienced, maybe I'm missing something like create like a hot spot, like on the board where, where you're like, Oh, I want to be like focusing around building in this one particular area where everybody would share that same sort of rights. Getting back to like the inner subjective decision space. Like we're all like deciding, like we want to get to the middle and it felt like the other ones yeah. enable more like, okay, everybody can sort of do their own thing and be successful. Definitely. Farmers can do that a little bit, but if you fight for the middle too hard, then it can be really punitive. I like farmers a lot. This gives you the three points for every settlement in in a sector, so a board, one of the four quadrants, where you have the fewest, because this sort of incentivizes creating a balance across all four. I think that's really interesting. And this has the potential to be pretty swingy, right? If you can get five, that's 15 points, which is pretty good. So I like that one. Merchants creates this sort of network building aspect where you're getting points for connecting different locations. I think that can be fun. But where, in my mind, they become the most fun is where you have multiple that are synergistic. Like citizens, where you're getting one gold for every two in a in your larger settlement area, along with merchants, can be kind of fun. Where you're trying to, like, yes, have the biggest settlement that's connecting to as many as possible. Um, I don't know. I agree that some of them are just a little bit too linear for my taste. Like, I don't love Hermits. I think it's kind of boring. Yeah, I don't like Hermits either. It doesn't lead to hugely interesting boards or point 
setups. It also seems like weirdly balanced in terms of points. Like it just seems like the Hermit's card is like really difficult to achieve in a lot of times, like creating yeah. a bunch of different settlements and and you're only getting one point for each group of different ones compared to like like we just talked about lords which gives you 12 points for having majority in one region or you know uh or or 15 points for having just 5 in you know each area of the board. Yeah, so again, it's sort of like that that is just kind of like weird in terms of the balancing. I do like that workers encourages blocking off location tiles in terms of like if you this is the one that gives you one point for every uh, settlement you have around a location it sort of makes organic what you kind of want to be in the game where you're covering things off so other players can't get to them i like that uh that it amps that up a little bit um but overall yeah. i do think that these are the strongest aspect of the game but i wish that some of them were pushed in even more different than others where like knights is just the same as discoveries and they're both kind of linear i think it's an interesting intersection between like variability or you know differences uniqueness between each play and decision space because i do feel like on one hand it's like a triumph right hooray like we actually do have a different game like it is very variable every combination of three is fundamentally going to change like the inputs that you have to consider before placing a settlement in the game and that's like successful but on the other hand of like the output maybe output's not the right word, but like the decision space, like what I have to actually like consider when I am placing, I feel like doesn't change at all. It's still sort of the exact same decision-making that you're applying just to like a different set of circumstances. Sure. Do you think that that would have changed at all if the sort of always on scoring of the castles, if there was a twist there? The fact that you're always using the castle card, it creates this evenness throughout the games no matter what you know in a given unique setup of kingdom builder the castles are always worth three points um why why do you sort of think that decision was made or how does that affect the decision space overall i think it's a good choice probably because i think like with four different scoring conditions that are like different every time uh it could just create like more of the like annoying like arithmetic that you have to do uh in each any given play and i feel i do feel like as much as i'm talking about like okay the the decision space is incredibly clear towards the end of the game if you have four different powers you are kind of like have to like work out a little sudoku puzzle in your head where you're like okay i have to like use this power and then this power and that will allow me to build three here and then i have to go back and do this other power uh, mm. to move one of those three that I placed to enable me to use my fourth power to play this here. And that will give me seven points versus if I do this in this other combination of ways, like I'll only earn five points. And like, you're kind of like working that out. And I think that's actually something that like when you're doing that and you've figured out your line to create the best possible play, it's fun. And it's like a satisfying moment. And you're like, I, I really did a lot that turn. And it's like one of the highs I get in this game is pulling off those turns and but it does feel mathy and i worry that having like a fourth kind of uh different consideration to add in every time would like sort of become too much where i would just kind of like you know it it would just be like testing mental bandwidth in a way that i don't think i find satisfying compared to like i'm having a hard time talking about this because 
Um, it like there's something different about that where I like I know it's all calculable and it's just like hard and annoying to do versus like fuzziness in a decision space in like another way because I'm like really interested in like what my opponents might be doing on their turn or considering. I completely know what you mean. And I do like that it's the sort of always on signpost that you can rely on and it informs the way that some of the other cards are working. Um, it's interesting how it relates to merchants. So it sort of amplifies the effects of connecting to a castle and sort of shapes, reshapes how you might look at the board or surrounding a castle with a worker's card on becomes kind of interesting. Um, it, it To me, it feels like another sort of aspect of the game where it's good. But it in some ways feels like a necessary concession of creating a game that works based around such a restrictive terrain system, um, which at the end of the day, it's sort of like, I think kind of is how I feel about Kingdom Builder overall, where it's sort of like, this is, I like it. I just don't love it. And I'm glad I've played it, but I don't know that I want to play it a ton more. Yeah. Yeah. I think at the end of the day for me too, um, there are, there are definitely moments in like learning and playing kingdom builder that i'd like genuinely had fun and i could be convinced to play this game again i would actually be interested in trying uh winter kingdom kind of the new edition which i've mm. heard people talk favorably about and and from people who maybe didn't like this first one or kind of bounced off it like i did a little bit i would be interested in trying those out like i feel like there are some really interesting things here i like the old school nature of having a hardcore restriction on like where I can take my turn and trying to figure out the best way there. Um, but felt like that in combination with like the adjacency rule in many cases just became too much because it simply meant like, I don't get to make a decision here. Yeah, totally. Well, if you think that there's aspects of kingdom builder that we, you love kingdom builder, you play it all the time that we missed we would love to hear from you and you can reach out to us uh, and interact with the whole decision space community on our discord, which you can find in the show notes or by going to our website, decisionspacepodcast.com. Uh, I'd love to hear what you love most about Kingdom Builder and let us know. You can also find us on Twitter. You can find myself at BurnsideBH or Jake at, at JakeFRYD. And you can find our show's account at Decision Spa. Uh, come in and have a spa day with us on Twitter. Let us know your thoughts about Kingdom Builder, uh, other things, decision space, and what you'd like to see us cover in the future, potentially. Kingdom Builder, it is a strategic game. It's not all luck. Um, see, I'm coming down definitively there. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I think that's a good place to be. I wish it was a game with 1.5 times more agency on a given turn, uh, but it's not. So onwards to future decision spaces. So we'll be back next week with a topical discussion. And then again in two weeks, potentially with a conversation, a deep dive into Raiders of the North Sea. I hope all of you have an excellent week. And Jake, thanks again for another lovely discussion about a decision space of an interesting, though kind of frustrating game. Yeah, great talking with you. Thanks for teaching me this one. And looking forward to next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.